All right. Well, um, it is the beginning of the fall season. I know we don't like to admit that here in northern Maine, uh, but it is happening, guys. I don't mean to uh, give a dose of cold water here at the beginning of our Sunday morning, but leaves are changing, geese are flying, it's getting cold, we know it's happening. But it is a good time, it's a helpful time for us to revisit some core essential truths that are at the very center of our church life. Um, We talk a lot here at State Road about being a people who, here's what we're all about, we're all about loving God, loving others, and love in action. This is what we're all about. And in the Great Commission, which is where all Christian churches get their marching orders from, words I'm sure that are very familiar to you, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is what Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, gave to the churches that this is supposed to be at the center of why we exist and what we do. We are to go and make disciples. Make disciples. Now that word disciple is something that is sometimes bandied about in Christian circles, but not really well understood or defined. I don't want that to be so here at State Road, and so we've been very careful in the past to define what a disciple is. A disciple is a fully committed follower of Jesus. It is a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus' example. Uh, You might remember this. Part of the uh, effort to make disciples, Jesus says, teach them all that I've commanded you. And I know this is review, uh, but it's helpful review, I think, every once in a while in the life of a church to, to revisit these truths. But in response to a question from a lawyer that had been posed to him, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when we put all that together, the command to go and make disciples, And a disciple is somebody who is a fully committed follower of Jesus, somebody who knows and understands the commands of Jesus and is a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of those things. When asked, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus makes this incredibly expansive statement. The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And there's a second that's like it, and that's that you love your neighbor as yourself. And on these commands depend all the law and the prophets. This is an incredible statement from the word made flesh. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the embodiment of the law and the prophets. And when he says, you want to know a summary statement about who I am, that's essentially what he's saying. Love God, love others. And then we add the statement, love in action, to make explicit what is implied, which is that that love will find its ultimate expression in what we do, not just what we say or what we feel. Now, we are studying through 1 John, not in an exhaustive verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter kind of way, Uh, But 1 John, and last week if you were here with us, you know that uh, what we saw in there is that the whole book of 1 John is really about this idea of loving God, loving others, and love in action. And the way John does it is very interesting. His whole book is filled with what I'm calling diagnostic language. 
It did, I, I don't, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything, but last week I asked that our entire church read the book of 1 John this last week. I thought that would be so cool if all of State Road was reading the same book. If you haven't done it yet, it's not too late. You can, <laughs> you can still dive in there and read it. But as you read through the book of 1 John, make note in some way of all the diagnostic language that you encounter. How many times does John say, by this we know, for example, in that book? How many times does he say, if this is true, then this is true? Or if this is not true, then this is not true? He uses this kind of diagnostic language all the time. And I shared the story last week about the man who was found by some fish and game wardens when I was a police officer who had white powder on a pane of glass. And he said, no, it's not what you think it is. And they said, yeah, right. (laughs) And we sent it off to the state crime lab, and it came back as Tylenol. The man had a headache, and he couldn't swallow pills, so he was snorting his Tylenol. But the only way to get to the truth of what that white powder was on the pane of glass was to run some diagnostic tests. And what John is saying is that there is the possibility in this fallen world of being a lookalike. And he really is very concerned that we not be deceived that we not be fooled into living a a look-alike Christianity that's less than what Christianity really is. And so he provides us with a long list of diagnostic tools, which really boil down to three tests that he wants us to run. We can group them and categorize them into three broader tests. One is the right understanding test. When he says, by this we know, he is saying, is this, do you have a correct view of who God is and what he has done for you? Do you understand rightly God and his, what he's done? This is the first diagnostic test. Is this your understanding? And then, as a result of that, two other diagnostic tests, he says, if you, if you do truly see God rightly, see the truth and love the truth of who he is, that will find expression in obedience to his commands and in a love for others primarily first not to the exclusion of everyone but as primary importance a love for his people the church and then that love for the church will flow out as a love to the world also i think this is his vision but obedience to his commands you might say how is that about love for god This is something else that's of critical importance, and I'm sorry for so much review in these Sunday mornings. We really have to have this in our minds if we're to go forward together understanding what John is saying in this short, punchy letter. But God's commands are not arbitrary. They're not arbitrary. They are a statement about who he is. When Jesus says, on this rests all the law and the prophets, and he's really talking about himself as the word of God, he is the embodiment of the commands. The commands are a reflection of who God is. Lying is not a sin because arbitrarily pulled out of a hat. Lying is a sin because God is, in his character, truth. Everything that is sin is so classified because it runs contrary to who God is in his character. And everything that is right and good agrees with who God is in his character. And so when, we, when, Jesus, when God says in his word, whether through Jesus in John 14 or through uh, the inspired writings of John here in the book of 1 John, when he says that if you love God, you keep commandments. What they are saying is that by keeping the commandments, this is one of the most important ways we have of saying to God, I love who you are. 
I love who you are. Our attitudes towards the commands of God are one and the same as our attitudes toward God himself. If you ever look on a command of God and you say, boy, that is burdensome, (laughs) or if you say, that is in the way of what I want, I want you to be soberly aware that your attitude in that moment is a statement about how you feel towards God himself. God is in the way of what you want. God is burdensome in your mind, not in fact, but in your mind. And I think this is very important. So when when God says in his word, if you love me, you keep my commands, he is not saying that loving God consists of law-keeping. No more than saying if you're hungry, you eat. (laughs) That's not true. What he's saying there is that if you really do love me, that will show up in loving me. (laughs) Your, Your keeping of my commands is a way of saying that you love me. So here we are. These are the three diagnostic tests. Do you see God rightly? Let's let's test that, says John. And if you do, that will show up in obedience to God's commands and in love for others, especially in the church. And I don't think there will ever come a Sunday where we look at one, one of these statements, loving God, loving others, love in action, to the exclusion of the other two. It's just impossible. They are far too intertwined and interconnected to really separate them out. Last week, we took in the view of 1 John from 30,000 feet, as it were. We did a flyover, like a Paul Sear photograph of Aristic County. But this Sunday, we want to touch our ultralight down on just one verse and examine it very closely, 1 John 3.16. You can turn with me in your Bibles there. John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this. This is uh, very much a diagnostic kind of verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is a very important verse for us as followers of Jesus Christ. uh, Because the way John writes this verse is very clearly, and this is what Jesus did. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what it will look like for you to to reflect who he is in the living out of it. It says, by this we know love. Uh, Love is a horribly confused issue in our culture today, I think. I wrote about this a little bit in the midweek email this week, but uh, in Greek, there are arguably maybe as many as seven different words for love. And in English, we have one. (laughs) We have love. That's it. And so we talk about how we love the new restaurant that opened in town, and I I love my dog, and I also say I love Sarah, and then I say I love God, I love the church. And so we go on this spectrum from the flippant, oh, I just love bagels, (laughs) which I do, Uh, (laughs) but I don't love them with an agape love, we'll get to that in a second. all the way up to the highest statements of love that I could make, love that I, for things that I would die for, love, love for things I would live for, you know. 
And the trouble is, at least in part, that our English word love is kind of a dull linguistic tool. Uh, the original Greek was more like a scalpel in its precision. Uh, but the word that we're talking about in the Greek is agape. When John speaks about love here, when he says, by this we know love, what word is he using there? He's using the word agape, and that is a divine, sacrificial love. That is the love that found its ultimate and highest expression in what Jesus did for us on the cross. How do we know what that kind of love is? Well, we've seen it in Jesus' example. And then he makes this incredible statement, (laughs) huge statement, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to do for one another what Jesus did for us. Wow, big, big time statement. But here's what I want you to see. This statement is all about loving God, loving others, love in action. I don't mean to just flippantly, by the end of this, we're all just going to rattle off our tongue. That those, that's what we're all about. But first, what I want you to see is that what Jesus did on the cross was first and foremost, maybe even, a demonstration of Jesus' love, not for you, but for the Father. It was. In John 6, 38, it says, for I, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 14, he says, But so the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. John 5, 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing, for whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Do you see what Jesus is saying? His going to the cross was a statement about his love for the father his obedience, his submission of his will to that great purpose was a statement about how he loved God. What does that tell you about God? Well, the command to go to the cross, for G- in Jesus' case, was a statement about who the Father was, something about his heart for you. Jesus, by the way, says something similar to us. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And in 1 John 4, 17, another verse out of this book that we're studying, it says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Don't you hear in that an echo of what Jesus said about his own relationship to the Father? Unless it is something he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Uh, Jesus modeled for us what he now calls us to, which is this submitted, yielded obedience to the commands of God. It is a life, it is a calling towards a, a life of costly, radical, sacrificial, outflowing love. Agape love. So I want us to see that first, that when Jesus went to the cross, it was a showpiece demonstration of his love for the Father. The second thing we have to see is that it was also a showpiece demonstration of how we are to love others. Uh, There in that verse in 1 John, it says, lay down our lives for the brothers. And here we see in a very dramatic way what that means 
When Jesus went to the cross and we are called to imitate his example, just a few things we might take away about what this shows us about love and the kind of love that should be present within our church family here and that flows out of our church as a blessing and a help to the surrounding communities. The first thing we have to see here is that the way Jesus' love found expression was that he came to us. He came to us. This is pretty basic. This is is pretty like a fundamental truth about the way Jesus loved us. But he did not stand up in heaven and say, get your act right. (laughs) Clean yourself up. He came down to us. He came to us. Uh, Verse is more familiar in December than September, but here we go, Matthew 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, in movies and television, love is often portrayed in our culture as something that just kind of happens. You just kind of fall into it. But the Bible calls us to move toward love with intentionality, purpose, and resolve. You have to plot a course towards love. You have to be intentional about moving towards it. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. God does not will for his people to run aimlessly or to fight like people beating the air. And what is the opposite of a life marked by aimless flailing? It is a life marked by intentional striving. And holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian life is not that we are perfect, but that we are actively, intentionally striving against the strong downward pull of these days. In other Sundays, I've used this illustration, and I don't know a better one, so forgive my repetition, but when I was a kid, we'd go to the mall, and the escalator would be coming down, and I like to try to run up the escalator that was coming down. Have you ever done that as a kid? Kids like to do that. Maybe you've done it as an adult. Some of you are kind of weird. But, <laughs> but the truth of it is, if you're running up an escalator coming down, if you stop, you don't hold your place, right? You get pulled down. And so this is true about the Christian life also. You are, there is a strong downward pull on your heart in the days in which we're living. There is. And if you stop, if you cease striving, if you stop uh, uh, being a, a present among God's people, if you stop being in God's word, if you stop pursuing God and his people and his calling on your life, then you don't hold your place. You slip back. This is why I think passages like Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 are so critical. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It says there, Stir up one another to love and good works. I like to couple this passage with another one in Matthew 24 when Jesus said, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, 
and those who persevere to the end will be saved. It says the love of many will grow cold. And in Hebrews 10, we are told not to, ne- not to neglect meeting together because that is the place where we will be spurred on to love and good works. Staying warm, and here's what it has to do with this point that Jesus came to us, that he moved towards the object of his love with intentionality, purpose, and resolve. Staying warm in this cold, fallen world calls for intentional striving. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love, that is, how to keep one another from becoming cold, and to good works, love and action. So we see how critically important it is for each of us personally as Christ's followers that we heed this command not to neglect meeting together in this way for mutual encouragement and watch care. Everybody knows that if you, from watching movies and stuff, that if you get hypothermia, what do you need? You need close body contact. You need body heat. You need to get warmed up. And this is true in this cold, fallen world. To prevent spiritual hypothermia from setting in, you need close contact with God's people. Uh, Again, I plug this, uh, not as a plug, but as I am fighting for your joy. Uh, But next summer, next, not next summer, next week, we hope to put out small group sign-ups. There is a much bigger vision here in the midst of this idea of Jesus coming to us than just simply responding to a small group sign-up by putting your name down. But again, I say to you, although there are many more ways you might righteously respond to this truth, that is a pretty good place to start. I encourage you to sign up for a small group next uh, next Sunday when we put out the sign-ups. And I would love to see that flourish here in our midst because we really do need body contact to stay, to stay warm. A second thing that we can see about how Jesus loved us and how we ought to love others is this. He loved us because of who he was and not who we were. An important verse for me personally, as I think through church life and stuff, is Colossians three twelve through 14, where Paul, writing to the church in Colossus, says this, put on then As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And right there, what a great description of a church. Wouldn't that be great to be a part of a church like that? And I'm blessed, I'm I'm really encouraged that this is very often true of what I see in practice here at State Road. But then he adds this statement, above all that, above all these, above compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, your ability to bear with one another, above forgiving one another even, above all that, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I often in my mind's eye think of the body, the church, as a bunch of moving parts in a machine. Uh, My first car I ever owned was a Buick Century, and it blew up on I-90 in in Herkimer, New York. (laughs) Threw a rod, there was a hole in the hood, (laughs) flames coming out. Do you know why that happened? 
because I had skipped oil changes. I was a starving college student. I had, I had enough money to buy a car, not to keep a car, one of those classic scenarios. And that poor car was abused, my goodness. And I was driving on I-90 trying to come home with my brother Job, and boom, the engine blew up. And my brother Job found a big gulp cup. I was just telling Roberta before the service, and he was shoveling water out of the ditch. <laughs> he actually put the fire out. I was pretty impressed. But when I think about our church, guys, here we have all of these moving parts called human beings, and we're working together. We're in close contact, and I'm calling you through signing up to small groups to be even, even closer contact, and if we are not lubricated with the oil of agape love, what happens when all those moving parts, they, they, they chafe? They heat up, they overheat, they explode. This is what happens to a church that doesn't take seriously this call to let, let in existence here be the agape love we saw in Jesus. And so it's really important to know that what Jesus demonstrated for us is that he loved us because of who he was, not who we are. In Romans 5.8 it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, when I think about what Jesus did, the, 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 the agape sacrificial love that he modeled for us, I think of Jesus washing the feet of Judas, serving him in that way even though he knew who Judas was and what he would do, and we might ask, well, why would he do that? And implied in that question, why would he do that, is the hidden assumption that our acts of service, the outward expressions of our love, are a tit-for-tat exchange. Almost like Jesus' foot washing was wasted on Judas. It was never about Judas. Jesus didn't do what he did because you were worthy. He didn't, do, he didn't not do what he did because Judas wasn't. Jesus is going to do Jesus <laughs> because of who he is. And he calls us to love others in this same way. He didn't wash Judas' feet thinking like this is a tit-for-tat exchange. I wash your feet and you love me and follow me. Jesus really didn't view love that way. He loved because it was his nature. And our nature didn't have to be lovable for him to do that. Matthew 5, 43 through 47 says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. So we see here that the, the love that Jesus modeled for us on the cross and that he calls us to imitate as sincere from the heart imitators of his is not one rooted in the worthiness of the person we're loving. It's rooted in our nature as a redeemed, transformed Jesus follower with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, one more before we move on to love and action. 
He loved us for the long haul. I'm not going to belabor this point, but Jesus didn't love us for a season and then bail. (laughs) This isn't how it goes. And very often I find that it's easy for me to get the gumption to, to love for a season, but then it feels at some point like it transitions into the church becoming to, beginning to feel like a, 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 a philanthropic Vietnam. There's no exit strategy. It's a quagmire of giving of myself. And I, I start to, I think that the, the death of every good intention is time. Everything corrodes in this world. Metal rusts, wood rots, and your good intentions just wear away under that strong downward pull of the days that we live in. Every good resolve needs to be uh, stoked, encouraged, nurtured, from time to time revisited. And, and, uh, and that's, again, why small groups are so important. That's where that often happens. But something to see about Jesus is he was not seasonal in his love for us. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. He loves you permanently, forever, eternally. And then he says, this is, by this we know love. And you ought to lay down your lives in the same way for your brothers, and I would add sisters too, of course, (laughs) for your fellow Christians. Love them in the same way. So, be intentional about moving towards them. Love them not because of who they are, but because of who Christ is in you. And love them in an enduring way over time. This is a difficult thing to live out. Easy thing to say from the pulpit, very difficult thing for me to walk down and live out in front of you all. But that's what we're called to. The last thing I want to say is this. We, we pointed out that this is a demonstration of Jesus' love for the Father. It is certainly a demonstration of his love for others. And I want you to see that it is very much, obviously, love in action. You know, I, in a seminary class I took, I read a book which challenged um, the originality of Jesus. <laughs> it was an interesting course and an interesting professor. I won't go, that's another story for another day. But my professor pointed out that roughly 500 years before Jesus came into the world, Confucius had a teaching which he called Jen, which he summed up by saying, do not unto others what you do not want others to do unto you. This professor pointed out that Buddha, many, many years before Jesus was incarnated at Bethlehem, had a a teaching, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. And in the Mahabharata, in the Hindu tradition, we find this statement, which again originated before the time of Jesus, of his earthly ministry. 
This is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what, you would, what would cause pain if done to you. Now, what, does the, what do those three statements sound like? Sound a lot like the golden rule in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is different in a very important way, a critically important way. What Jesus said was this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Again, the law and the prophets. This is uh, very similar at the end to how he's wording these two great commandments, being a summary statement about the law, about who Jesus is. And the thing I want you to see that's different between this command of Jesus and the teachings of Confucius or Buddha or the Hindu tradition is this. Jesus does not call you to refrain from doing something. This is very important. (laughs) Confucius, Buddha, Hindu, did you catch that? They all said, do not do. Don't hurt others. It's a fine teaching. But it's not the golden rule, it's a silver rule. It's less than the fullness of what the Bible calls us to. Jesus says, don't passively not do things to people. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you want to be my follower, I'm calling you to act. I'm calling you to do, not to refrain. There is no libertarian impulse in this teaching. There is none of this, what's wrong with it as far as it doesn't hurt other people? That's the ethics of our day. That is what our culture is steeped in today. I can do whatever I want so long as it doesn't hurt other people. And it's right, and it's good, right? Jesus doesn't say, don't do things to others that would hurt them. That's not the command. I think he certainly was against hurting people. Don't get me wrong. But his command goes above. That is a minimalist sort of an ethic. Jesus is a maximalist. Jesus says, do to others what you would like them to do to you. And this is what prompts him to go to the cross, This is the cross in action. This is him doing for us what we didn't have the wisdom to ask for. (laughs) This is amazing. Biblical love is always active. It is never just a feeling or words. Biblical love never finds its ultimate and highest expression in how we feel or just words that we say. All those things are pretty empty if they don't find expression in doing for others what you'd like them to do for you. Love in action, agape love. 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is not about live and let live. (laughs) He is about dying so that others may live. This is hugely different. Jesus lived a radical life marked by a radical love, and we as his disciples... 
are committed to go and do likewise, commanded to go and do likewise. And can you imagine, guys, can you just imagine what it would be like if that vision flourished in me and in you and in our church? Really, truly. If we loved one another with that kind of sacrificial love, what would that say to the surrounding community? Can you imagine, can you imagine if we made God visible with that kind of love for one another here? I would, I'm just transfixed by a vision of that. And every great journey begins with a small step. And let me humbly submit to you that maybe the first step to be taken in obedience to this vision might be something like signing up for a small group. Again, I run a risk of taking such a big truth as this and boiling it down to something mundane. It almost feels like arm twisting, <laughs> gimmicky, like I'm trying to leverage this to increase signups. I don't, I'm really not doing that. I, I really just think that this is a much bigger vision. There are many ways that we could respond in obedience to it, but I do think that one very practical way we can take a step towards this flourishing here in the midst of our church is by seeing these kind of smaller groups flourish. And hopefully in the coming weeks I can make the case uh, through Scripture again why this is, um, th- th- this is a, there is a clear biblical mandate for that here in the life of our fellowship. I'm excited about Sunday school starting soon. We are, uh, need to set a date for that to start, but um, excited for that. And that is a small group. I'm excited for small groups meeting in living rooms and here in the church during the week and for Hide and Seek Club, which was a small group for really little kids. And varsity and all kinds of great stuff. Very important, though. This is good, but that is also essential. So I challenge you to take a step in doing that next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these days are cold. And Father, one of your means of grace by which we are kept alive and warm is the body of Christ. And Father, we all know that a coal removed from the fire will turn to ash quicker than the ones that are right there in the middle of the heap. And so Father, we find ourselves here in this place this morning, striving against the downward pull of these days. And God, as we strive, as you draw us into your word, as you draw us towards a small group community, as you draw us towards intimate, close contact with your people, Father, I pray that you would meet us in wonderful ways and that the kind of love that Jesus modeled for us on the cross would find very practical, outward, visible expression, God, here in the midst of our fellowship as we gather in that way. Father, we ask you, Lord, to shape us, to move your God, to cause to flourish good things here at State Road Advent Christian Church. We love you and are so grateful for your calling on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.